Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkoff, and I am your host, and I am here in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in your nation's capital, not too far away uh, in one of the bucolic neighborhoods of Washington, D.C. We have Evelyn Farkas of the Atlantic Council, a little bit further away at her secret compound on the eastern shore of Maryland. <laughs> we have... Rosa Brooks procrastinating another book into existence. Um, Is that the way? It, will it work that way if I just procrastinate hard enough? Will it eventually appear? Exactly. Well, when I was like in theater, you know, we, we used to like take the script and stick it under our pillow, and 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 say that it would sort of work right. by osmosis. You know, that it would sort Absolutely. of memorize your lines that way. And in London, England, we have the Deputy Director General of the S, fresh from another trip to the United States, Corey Shockey, <laughs> um, who seems to be um, on both sides of the Atlantic at the same time most of the time, as far as I can tell. Are uh, you saying I look fat in this dress, David? Oh, oh wow. <laughs> no, he's saying you have superpowers. You are. Oh! Excellent, Evelyn. You span the continents. I am saying that you are... You're grateful to Evelyn for saving this. Heisenberg's daughter, and I know how fast you are, but I don't know where you are at the same time. Wouldn't it be Schrodinger's daughter? No, that's Schrodinger's cat. Heisenberg was the uncertainty principle. <laughs> if you're Schrodinger's cat, there's a 50% chance that you're dead. So that's not <laughs> yeah. But I could be on one side of the Atlantic and also the other. Well, no, but if, if, but if you're Heisenberg's, Heisenberg's daughter and we knew how fast you were going, then we wouldn't know exactly where you were. So you could actually theoretically be in both places. Excellent. <laughs> physics we, we we simple rural people here on the eastern shore don't understand what you're saying are you like crabbing do you go out roll <laughs> yeah. up your pants pick up a blue crab out of the mud bring it home well do do- today i was mostly fleeing from the helicopter sized mosquitoes that have suddenly emerged <laughs> uh, well, billy collins has a really beautiful poem called crossing the susquehanna that i feel like is perfectly attuned to you out there on the eastern shore <laughs> well that well, I- I'm, that's an opportunity. a little off. But, but true. But Are you going to read hand, poetry, David? No, but I, I'm sure that Rosa is looking for every opportunity not to work on her book. 
And so Absolutely. it's like, maybe <laughs> tomorrow. Poetry by Billy Collins uh, is an excellent way to avoid working. Exactly. You know, I wanted to say, I mean, there's a lot going on. And, you know, the week started off with the president of the United States meeting with a world leader who hates immigrants and loves Russia, you know, who could have figured that out, uh, you know, that the two of them would hit it off. Uh, in, in Italy's new prime minister, <laughs> Conte. Um, and I'll get to that in a minute. But, you know, I was thinking, I, I come out of these days, you know, in a kind of a fog. You know, there's just like every minute it's like there's a Manafort thing, there's a Trump thing, there's Rudy Giuliani saying something demented, there's Michael Cohn, there's Michael Avenatti, there's, um, you know, the late, you know, Pompeo talking, you know, crap to the Congress or something about the, the you know, Pacific, uh, you know, talking about Pacific trade or there's, you know, and just there's just this ongoing blur and it's really hard to sort of sort it all out, figure out what to focus on. And so what I thought I would do, because we have three great minds here on this uh, uh, episode as commentators, is to ask you a simple practical question. I'll start with you, Corey. What do you read? What do you read every day to figure out what the hell's going on? Oh, you know, I I feel like I am the... Um, intellectual version of a shark that I have to be constantly fed information and inspiration. Otherwise I suffocate. So I start off by reading um, the daily posts on the economist, the financial times, the wall street journal, the New York times, the Washington post. Um, and then I read press clippings from all over the place uh, mostly defense press clippings, but also some foreign policy stuff. And that's how I get my basic sense of what's going on in my mother country, which I am across an ocean from. But in, on, on, not, not on paper. You don't like read a newspaper that's printed on paper. No, I would rather destroy the environment by using electricity than by using paper. Uh, that's, a, that's a good choice. And, and Evelyn, how do you, where, well, do you, where, where do you get your, your info? So I, I confess I'm a very old-fashioned woman. Um, <laughs> um, uh, I like old things, and I like newspapers. So I, my first thing I do almost when I get up in the morning is grab my newspaper, the Washington Post, which gets delivered, though I live in an apartment building right to my door, right outside my door. And um, so that I read, and I actually read, I love reading the newspaper because I read articles I wouldn't read and I don't read when I'm reading, for example, my other major source of news, the New York Times online, because I just, I read from cover to cover, I read the Washington Post, the, the front section, then I read the style section, it's very important, especially page two, because you get the backstory of what's going on, who knows whom, and who did, who socialized with whom, right? Uh, but but uh, by the way, I appreciate your honesty. Corey did not mention reading the sports pages. She did not. Oh, Corey reads the St. Louis Post-Dispatch every single day. I, I thought that was assumed among Cardinal Nation, that, <laughs> that I always knew how my ball club was doing. Uh, yeah, okay. and so I don't read the sports section, I confess. I read the metro section, like I skim it and see what's there. Um, and um, and then online, I read religiously the political playbook because it's a really good summary of the news. If I have time, I read the same kind of thing that NBC does. 
Um, and then there's the Military Times, which is basically what used to be called the Early Bird. It's a clipping service of, uh, I actually don't remember now, Defense News does it. And it's basically all the news relevant to the Department of Defense, um, very in the weeds. Um, and then I also get something from the embassy in Moscow, which is a uh, English language. You can't get it if you're a regular so I confess this is not a public thing, but anyway, it's it's like a clippings thing of English language um, articles on what's going on in Russia. That's from the U.S. embassy in Moscow. Yes, right. So I, I just, probably shouldn't even have mentioned that one. But the ones that I get that are public, the new the the Washington Post in print, and then New York Times online, and then the other those other three I mentioned: Military Times, Politico. Playbook and the NBC one online, and that is enough reading, David. Well, no, it's a good <laughs> it's a good start. But I'm sure that Rosa is sitting out there facing the choice of either working or reading may read even more. So what I do you... read. I read constantly, but I'm I'm slightly embarrassed to say that I I read very little that is uh, improving in any way. I mostly read fiction. <laughs> That's and girl. <laughs> a great deal of the fiction I read is complete junk. Um, like give, give I, us give us some examples of that. Well, let's see. Um, well, right now I'm I'm at, I, I read and I also read very quickly and I listen to a lot of audiobooks and I have trouble often remembering either the names or the titles of what I'm reading. So right now, for instance, I'm listening. I'm simultaneously listening to a British police procedural fiction of some sort that neither the name nor the title of which I could possibly tell you because I don't remember. And I'm also reading a oh, sort of detective fiction by an American author, but I can't remember his name or the title of that either. And I'm reading that on my iPad. Um, and everything I know about the world I've learned from reading fiction, which is why I don't know very much. Um, um, but I will say that I do I do force myself a little bit. Usually when, like Evelyn, when I wake up, um, I tend to look at the front pages of the Times and the Post and click on anything that looks sort of interesting. Most of it does not look very interesting to me, so I don't click on everything. Um, I glance at the Atlantic. Uh, I glance at foreign policy, despite its its precipitous decline since your departure, David. Um, every now and then there's something worthwhile in it, um, including oh, for instance, something that maybe we can discuss during this podcast. So uh, uh, an interesting piece by the always smart Mike Azenko on the dangers to Democrats of getting too obsessed with Russia as the archvillain. Um, I sometimes look at Slate, but it seems to have degenerated mostly into one long advice column. Uh, and, and other than that, I don't regularly read any one thing, you know, when I have to write about something or talk about something, I tend to do a deep and rather indiscriminate dive, uh, on that topic. But, but other than that, I, I periodically glance at other people's tweets because I find that the really helpful thing about friends and acquaintances is that you don't have to read because they will tell you in 140 characters <laughs> less, everything you need to know, which is which is fantastically time-saving and gives me more time to read novels. <laughs> Fabulous. I endorse reading fiction, too. Are you, reading, are you reading any fiction? Um, I just finished... Um, this is actually like very silly fiction, but, but, but very enjoyable. Um, Crazy Rich Asians. 
and oh, yeah. I and I put fun. down. I confess, I put down. I just got a little bit tired of Without Precedent, which is a fantastic book about John Marshall. So I have to go back and finish that. But I needed a fiction break. I just finished reading a splendid novel called Less, which huh. is as good a book as Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. It, it's so funny and so poignant and restores my faith in America, which is what I read fiction for. Yeah. Wow. This, this is very helpful. I think people will re- listen and understand that the richness of your perspectives comes from the fact that you are not just nose into the New York Times all day long. I personally get up and I, you know, I, it's become a bit of a, a, a disease, but I, I've, over the course of the past few years, I've gotten to be following something like 4,000 people on Twitter. And I, so Twitter to me is a news feed. And I just right. sort of me dive. Me too. Yeah, yeah. And I just sort of dive in and just, you know, I'm following the writers and the whatever. And, you know, it's it's really interesting to watch because there's a kind of a real-time take on things. And I know, I know, you know, you guys also sometimes go on TV shows like I do. And I find myself sitting there before the, the hit on the TV show, quickly going through Twitter to say what what's recently broke and where is everybody on this thing, um, and I find it useful. You know, I I do too. I love Twitter. I think of it as a curated newsfeed. I'm absolutely ruthless about who I follow, and and I learn a ton from the reporting of journalists who are posted around the world, from the insights of people commenting on what they're learning. And because it's such a low investment of my time and energy, I actually find I follow people and learn a lot about a lot broader things than even I would invest in reading newspaper articles about. That's true. Twitter is how I always get my interesting science news because there's always somebody in my Twitter feed who has <laughs> who has whatever bizarre science story there is. And it's fascinating and it's not something I would probably look for on my own, but I'm very happy to get it. And also, also of course, like our, our Twitter or our Tweety Tweety birds or whatever what, what do we call our Twitter people? Nerds or deep state radio nerds those. Deep state Twitter followers. Deep Birds. Deep State Radio nerds. Yeah, just call them nerds. Oh, that's not nice. No. D- yes, it is a sign of affection, and they understand it. But as that's such. that's like an abusive relationship when you call the people you love by mean mean things. I call them glamorous Tweety Birds. But a nerd is not a bad thing. Yeah, someone has a lot of stuff <laughs> stuffed into their brain. Yeah, I gotta say, guys, if nerd being a nerd is a bad thing, we're all in deep trouble. So, I know. yeah, that's right. That ship has sailed. <laughs> Although, you know, I'm pretty cool because this Friday past, I went to the Beyonce concert. Ooh, uh, um, that is tip. That which was pretty pretty cool and pretty great experience. And then I followed that the next night because I wanted to do something more work oriented by seeing Mission Impossible. Um. Which was, <laughs> that, which is pretty much. Okay, says look all. at you, so in turn, so in tune with popular culture, David. Yeah, well, absolutely. But it was very, you know, they were both sort of spectacle, and we sort of live in an era of spectacle. I think a little bit like ancient Rome, perhaps. But you know, there's there's a there's a People lot mauling going. themselves to pieces in front of a large audience. Yeah, well, exactly, um, and you know, crazy Caligula like leaders and that and that sort of thing well i just i just wanted to go through that because i think it's hard to keep up with stuff 
and and therefore it it's kind of interesting for you know the deep state radio nerds to sort of have their take on all of this and obviously if some of them out there are doing something about you know gathering information that's even more clever and we're missing it besides of course listening to deep state radio let us know you know let us know via the twitters um, well, and, and one of these days we should do a, an episode where we talk about the books that we're reading. And I would even be willing to that end to go into the Kindle app and the Audible apps and find out the titles <laughs> and the of books that I particularly like. <laughs> oh, right. As opposed to going, there was a book I read two months ago and, there was, guy. and there was a British guy in it and I, I liked say, it. She does actually sound like she's writing a book. Right, yeah. <laughs> so focused on what she is doing that everything else blurs at per- at the periphery. Well, that's yep. very generous, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know I agree, and I think maybe you know next week or the week after we can do our summer reading show and sort of go over yeah. some of those. Oh, stuff. that sounds like fun. Yeah, that yeah, would no, be great. No, I think a lot of people and would. because I I also think in fact, um, and this is this is partly it's of course self serving since I've just confessed that I don't really read anything very deeply day to day, um, that you can make yourself pretty crazy right now uh, by obsessively following certain things in the news cycle. And I think we we probably can all agree that Trump would be less of a danger if the if in fact we lived in a non-democratic society in which the media all actively colluded together to ignore him, right? Um, we don't. Uh, but unfortunately, I think that this just feeds him. So I absolutely agree with that conclusion, Reza, but my analysis is somewhat different, which is that um, I wish we lived in a society where we all had the civic discipline to avert our eyes and not give our attention to the crazy person behind the curtain. Yes, indeed. Well, that would be nice. You know, you kind of wonder what the last novel Trump read was. (laughs) Wait, what novels? What? <laughs> the last novel Trump read. Uh, <laughs> I think you yeah. might find it in a section of the library we don't go to anymore. Or, or it may have been whatever, whatever the analog when Trump was a child of Goodnight Moon uh, that that post dates him. But I have a feeling that he hasn't read a whole lot of novels no, in no. his adult life. No, I'm sure it was kind of like getting a third of the way into the wind and the willows in sixth grade. And then that was it, you know? (laughs) So wait a minute. I've got it. Billy Collins has another wonderful poem. This one uh, titled something (laughs) like on, on finishing Anna Karenina. And the, the point is he thinks the Russian government should give him a medal because he has concluded an enormous <laughs> Russian novel. And maybe that's the way to get the president to read. The Russian government's going to oh. give you a medal. Yeah, I think yes. the Russian government's already given him plenty. It's well, sort of like the enough. summer and reading. He them. Like... And he them. Yeah, no, it's 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 really true. Evelyn, when you're sort of digging in and and reading some of these takes, including sort of perhaps the Russian takes... What do you think the Russian perception of Trump is right now? Oh, my gosh. I mean, they first of all, youthful is the first word that pops into my head. (laughs) You know, he is absolutely so useful to them. And even though he's it's the it's the great hair. Yeah. I mean, to our mind, you know, some people say, oh, he's unpredictable here in the U.S. But I think the Russians have his number. And they love to manipulate him so that he continues to 
you know, erode America's confidence in America and, you know, divide America from its natural allies and, you know, sidle up to the dictators and, uh, you know, tear at the fabric of America, overspend so that, you know, I mean, Al-Qaeda, you know, tried to make us spend too much money and we arguably spent too much money or certainly we spent a lot of money fighting Al-Qaeda. I I don't think, I mean, maybe there's always waste there, right? But we did a darn good job fighting Al-Qaeda. The Russians now are watching Trump waste our money on things like bailouts for problems he he created. I'm referring, of course, to the 12, is it million, million dollars that we're paying the uh, farmers? Billion. Um, in billion. Order. I, billion. I thought it was billion. Yeah. So anyway, um, billion to um, ameliorate the effects of his that, going this, to by the way, on tariffs. That, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, is your classic former Department of Defense official not knowing the difference between millions and billions. <laughs> no, and actually, you know what's even crazier is that I worked for seven years on the defense budget in the Senate, so I should know that it's billion and not million. Um, but. You know, I've been reading fiction for a, a week or so. So, you know, oh, no, you days. don't get to blame fiction for this. <laughs> the humanities are not going to take the fall I for this. I, no, I just made a point today because earlier today I was hanging out with a bunch of um, defense geeks and they said $800 billion defense budget. And I said, actually, it's 717 for fiscal year 19. So I actually do. No, but I don't know the scale when it comes to defense, but I don't know the scale of agricultural bailouts. So I apologize for leaving off uh, zeros. Well, let's pick up on that, Corey. I was listening to the president's news conference with the Italian prime minister, who he said won a big victory, although he actually did not win a big victory because he was selected by uh, the coming together of two groups in a coalition. But let's leave that aside. He was saying that, uh, first of all, NATO was going bankrupt. Um, it was going to go belly up before Trump got involved, and now billions are coming in because of him, and so it will do okay. And that the United States spends ninety percent of the NATO budget. And I was just wondering if we're going to do a little bit of budget analysis here. How, how do you? What do you think of those numbers? Uh, I think that this should not be the moment at which people realize the president is innumerate. Uh, so this has been clear for some time. NATO defense spending started increasing in 2014 as a response to Russian aggression in Crimea and Ukraine. The United States does spend a disproportionate amount, does have, no, let me put it differently. The United States does have a defense budget disproportionately large. Right, The total defense budget of the United States is 70% of all NATO defense spending. But of course, we don't have our, the entirety of our defense budget for NATO. In fact, right. uh, the IISS, right before the NATO summit, because we are a data-producing organization, we ran the numbers. And uh, about 5% of the U.S. defense budget is spent exclusively on Europe. The troops stationed in Europe, the exercises, our contributions to NATO funds, the NATO AWACS, things like that. The reinforcement of Europe, should that be necessary, is in addition to that. But roughly $30 billion, or about 5% of the U.S. defense budget, is specific to Europe on a day-to-day basis. So the president can't add 
president has no idea what he's talking about when he talks facts and figures. But again, this this isn't a news headline. But you know what is interesting? Two things that are interesting, um, one of which is depressing. Um, going back to your question, David, about what, what, what do Russians think of Donald Trump? They're not crazy about him, and they seem, uh, like most Americans, to regard him as extremely self-centered uh, and to regard him as potentially dangerous. Um, in a poll right before uh, the summit meeting with Trump, 77% of Russians described Trump as self-centered and 58% described him as dangerous. Um, here's the second thing that's interesting um, and also a little bit depressing. After the summit, Russian opinions of Donald Trump ticked up slightly, only slightly, uh, probably because of the way the summit was covered in the Russian media, obviously, um, that you know Trump was correctly perceived by Russians as pro-Russian, cozying up to Putin, and Russians' views of Americans, not of Trump, but of America and Americans, uh, became slightly more negative after the summit, mainly as a result, of, I assume, of Russian media coverage of uh, Americans being totally appalled and outraged at the way Trump was cozying up to, to Putin. Um, so on the one hand, the good news is the Russians, just like us, think Trump is basically an ass. Uh, the bad news is that they uh, uh, are somewhat taken in by the summit performance and they don't like us all that much. You Think about that, Evelyn. That's kind of an interesting twist. The president of the United States goes out there, makes a, a you know performance alongside the the, the Russian president, the Russians say, yeah, we like the president. We just don't like Americans that much anymore. <laughs> you know, I mean, he, he kind of endears himself, but but distances himself from the rest of the country. That's yeah, a, that's a kind of an interesting twist, isn't it? Well, I mean, the Kremlin's been feeding, you know, an anti-American line to the Russian people for a while, which is why. You know, when I first saw the, the the beginning of the Helsinki summit, you know, at the very beginning, they sat down together and the press was there um, with the before their one on one started. And I was and I noted that Putin was not smiling at anything until like about, I don't know, a, a ways in, maybe two thirds of the way in to Donald Trump speaking, President Trump speaking. Then Putin, and, and he mentioned something about, you know, the U.S. and Russia having 90 percent of the world's nuclear weapons. Then Putin sort of, sort of smiled. But basically, be, prior to that, President Trump, you could tell he was trying to get Putin to smile, sort of like when you're trying to get someone to like you, you know, <laughs> with various points that he made earlier. And Putin was showing the normal slouching posture, you know, stoic, expressionless face. And I thought to myself, that's because it's not about the words, it's about the camera footage that they're going to use later on Russian television, because they don't want the Russian people to start thinking that, oh, America's great, and we don't have to be worried about America now. You know, even if he's going to have the meeting with Trump, he's going to make sure that the Russian people still view America, the United States of America, in a kind of adversarial um, light. That's a what isn't what an interesting sort of twist. In other words, he gets Trump to work for him. He gets him to be a kind of a you know agent of his of his plans, directly, indirectly, consciously, unconsciously. Um, uh, but part of that is to continue to undermine the United States of America. So you got you, it. You know, it's a it's a it's a 
it's an interesting thing. Now, Trump, of course, Corey, thinks that that one-on-one meeting was hugely successful. And even in the meeting with Conte, he said again, well, it was went really well, but the fake media didn't report that. Um, and then, you know, he, you know, to sort of indicate that he's really good at these one-on-one meetings because the one with Kim went so well and the one with Putin <laughs> went so well. He said, you know, I, you know, somebody asked him among the very few members of the press who were allowed to ask questions and who were screened <laughs> out uh, in advance to to ask, you know, questions that didn't make them uncomfortable. He said that he would be willing to meet with the Iranian leadership um, uh, anytime, any place, no preconditions. What do you think? Uh, I think the American president should always be willing to meet our adversaries and talk with them with no preconditions. I think it's not only really important. Uh, and when did we lose confidence that the leaders of free societies could persuade adversaries uh, of common interest. <laughs> Corey, or that question sort of answers issues. itself. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, when did really? we lose confidence? Um. No, no, but, but no, I'm serious, because this predates Trump, right? Like, I, I see to the point that President Trump shouldn't be trusted with an egg beater or anything more dangerous than that. But, but, President Bush was unwilling to meet with leaders without preconditions. President Obama campaigned that he would meet the leaders of Iran without preconditions, but he never chose to. And I actually think um, those of us who come from free societies have enormous advantages. We, we're good at the art of persuasion and arguing because that's what we do in free societies nonstop. And that not just to avert crises and try and persuade our adversaries that that there's common ground, but if, God forbid, we actually have the necessity of going to war with some of these countries, it's crucial to show that the use of force is the last resort to the American people. Well, I think that would be crucial. And the idea, the principle you're describing is certainly a good principle. But, Rosa, isn't the kind of implication— maybe that was hinted at in your little bit of back and forth there is that while the principle that the United States president should meet with any world leader without preconditions may be perfectly okay, it actually matters who the U.S. leader is. Yeah, I mean, I do agree with Corey in principle. I I thought that the, uh, the degree to which Obama was beaten up on for saying that he would he would in principle be willing to meet with uh, the Iranians, et cetera, was was shameful. I mean, I, I think that's right. You, you, you know, uh, you, you have to talk to people. You don't have to agree with them. You don't have to give them anything. You don't have to have the talks come to any particular conclusion. But you have to talk to people. You have to keep the doors open. And in fact, I, I, I do think that one U.S. failing, this is not entirely unrelated, is that we prefer to... Uh, berate other countries that we disagree with using language that suggests that they're they're toddlers, and we're always we're always saying absurd things like we cannot tolerate that, and it is unacceptable. Um, and this this is a you know standard part of American foreign policy rhetoric is that we say things like that. We usually don't do anything about it, uh, and it just kind of pisses people off around most of the rest of the world. Um, so instead of actually doing real diplomacy, we just denounce from a distance. Um, so I agree with Corey in principle. Um, I, 
you know, the, 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 the thing about Tom. I see you the practical argument in this case. Rosa. Well, but, I'm going to counter but, it though but, in a minute, but, but I'm, I'm not, I, I'm not actually necessarily going to go there. Cause I, cause I think the thing about Trump, as we know, is he's completely unpredictable. Um, the, for better or for worse, there is absolutely no way to know. If, if Trump goes into meetings with the Iranians, does he come out wanting to nuke Iran or does he come out saying, everybody said that they were terrible people, but we got along great. You know, we're going to you know, open up a Trump hotel in Tehran and, <laughs> and you know, this magically diffuses a you know, multiple looming crises. There's just no way to know. So I, I don't know that I, I would say I certainly don't have any confidence in him, but neither do I necessarily think it's a, a inevitably a bad thing. Go on, Evelyn, have at it. Well, the, the, the only part I was going to encounter, so I absolutely agree with my two eminent colleagues about, you know, the, need, the, the desirability in general to have conversations, to have discussions, you know, between our leaders or among leaders, what have you. And, and the precondition thing can be constraining. And then I also agree that, you know, President Trump, we know that he's gone into meetings with foreign officials and divulged U.S. national secrets. We know that he has uh, negotiated away without receiving things in return. So the first example is, of course, the famous one in the Oval Office when he told Lavrov and uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov, Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov and Ambassador Kislyak, some sensitive intelligence that we received from Israel relating to terrorists and aircraft and laptops. The second example where he gave away without getting anything in return was, of course, with Kim Jong-un, where he said, well, we're going to freeze indefinitely our exercises with the South Koreans. And thus far, we really haven't received anything in return, although we'll see what comes back with regard to these remains that were delivered. And I say we'll see because they need to be examined to determine whether they are indeed remains, et cetera. Um, so we know that he's that in these meetings, sometimes he can do damage. Sometimes, you know, obviously we don't get anything in return. So that that may be damage because it, it affects our negotiating ability down the road. Um, but I will say with regard to saying things and whether we I, I agree 100 percent that the U.S. has been so arrogant about how we talk to other countries. You know, I would go into meetings all the time during the Bush administration and say, look, we know we're not perfect because the world could see we weren't perfect, but we are trying hard. And so also please release those, you know, prisoners or also please stop torturing. Um, so I think there's a way to talk to other countries in, in private, you know, behind closed doors. That's really important. And then there's, you know, talk to them directly without talking down to them and then do the same thing on the world stage. And I used to be one of those people who would say, well, if you're just going to talk about it, that's not good enough. And, you know, because we would have, I don't know, president, lots of presidents talk to countries like, I don't know, Egypt, you know, take your pick about human rights issues, but yet really don't not do much about it. Right. I've actually found that it bothers me that President Trump doesn't raise these issues publicly. And you can do it in a way that's not condescending, but it reminds the world that we still are trying hard to adhere to these principles in the US. And we also expect, if you want to be our close ally and partner, that you adhere and you make progress in adhering to those principles. So I, I, I found myself being a little more interested in hearing those words 
even if they're not followed up by action. Well, let me give another or, or ask a question about another dimension of this, Corey. Last week, the president of the United States got ticked off by something Rouhani had tweeted out about uh, Iran and war. And he said, you know, there are terrible things in store for Iran, worse things than anybody's ever seen. Uh, and of course, the minute that he made this offer to meet with them, I, I realized what he meant was meeting with him. Uh, and having to spend time <laughs> having to spend time with Trump. But there is another dimension of this, which is context. You know, do, doesn't it make the president of the United States look even more ridiculous Crazy. when one week he's threatening horrific, destructive outcomes for a country and the next meeting he's saying, do you want me to, you know, bring a salad when I come to visit you? <laughs> So I realize I sound like incredibly dour a lot these days and saying this isn't funny. This is actually desperately serious. Um, and, and it would be funny that the president has an all azimuth strategy, right? Like he endorses every position on the spectrum at some point in time, except that this is actually extraordinarily damaging to America's credibility. Our friends don't know if they trust us. Our allies don't know if they understand where red lines exist or not. Um, the president thinks there is no cost to pay for uncertainty, and he is wrong about that right. in a way that could end up disastrous. Oh, my God, that was really well put. Hey, thank you, my friend. I mean, yeah. not, I'm not surprised that she put it really well because it's Corey, but, but it, yes, he needs to hear you say that. Well, I'm not sure he's a listener. Quite honestly, <laughs> maybe the president clandestinely walks around the White House uh, instead of watching Fox. He's got headphones on. He's got a closet. State, state radio. radio. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we actually have someone go and slip an earpiece into his ear when he's asleep, um, and so he listens to this uh, all subliminally. And I'm glad that he's 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 getting these messages. From you, you know, Rosa, another important thing that the president announced in the midst of this press conference was that it, that he wants to begin a strategic dialogue with Italy. And I was thinking <laughs> this could come in extremely handy in the event that Carthage starts acting up again. <laughs> you know, you just got to take your strategic dialogues where you can get them, David. <laughs> and if Italy's the only country that was willing to have a strategic dialogue with us, then, you know, we pasta recipes. David, I realize you are trying to taunt me into answering that point about Carthage, but I am going to hold my fire. I want, you, I, I want you to do it, Corey. I want you to tell us about how every time you see an elephant, you sound the alarm. The wars are hugely important. They were, right. Very good. <laughs> wait, wait, Rosa, you use the... You use the past tense. I use the They are. Tense. I'm sorry. You're right. They still are very important. Very, very important. The, the, right, the punic... But, but, and indeed, the common element here, as you correctly intuit, David and Corey, is that 
the theme here is decline of once great empires. <laughs> and I can't believe you guys were trying to say you weren't nerds. <laughs> yeah, really. I wasn't a nerd. I said our <laughs> listeners are, are much cooler than we are. Yeah, yeah. No. All that is frantically true, Googling the Punic Wars. Nerds. They are. C- C- Corey, tell them Trump, something Trump about... Trump was mostly interested in the pubic wars, which is a completely different... Oh, story. oh, oh my God. God. That's of U.S. Empire. Is that still rated family, David? Well, first of all, we're not rated <laughs> okay, family. So, and so st- allow me to interject <laughs> Scipio Africanus, because that's the right way <laughs> to do. redirect this conversation <laughs> to the Punic Wars... Um, and the importance of of the Carthaginian and Roman uh, confrontation. It's true, but if Trump ever heard of a leader named Scipio Africanus, he would immediately say, shithole country, I don't want to have anything to do with them. <laughs> yes, yes, he certainly would, which is why he would lose his wars. No, it's true. But, you know, Evelyn, having said all of this, part of Trump's security dialogue um with uh, uh, the uh, the Italians, of course, has has to do with North Africa because of immigrants. Because he hates immigrants, they hate immigrants. We, you know, we haven't even talked about the Italian foreign minister um, Salvini, who's who's a real bad egg and says horrible things all the time, um, uh, like this, which has also drawn Trump to them. Um, but it you know it seems like. There is this kind of budding alliance afoot, you know. Uh, and actually, I wrote something a couple of days ago for um, uh, uh, an Israeli paper, Haaretz, uh, talking a little bit about the fact that there seems to be this kind of emerging, not, you know, in the 20th century, we had the League of Nations. This is a League of Nationalists. There is an emerging alliance. And you see it, you know, Orban went to Israel and Orban is in it and Netanyahu's in it and these Italians are in it and Putin is in it and the Poles are in it and and the Brexiteers are in it or, and, or the UKIPers, certainly, and and Trump is in it. And this is, you know, I mean, we can we can laugh about this. I don't mean to sound as dour as, as Corey alleges she does, um, but but there really is something going on here that is global and disturbing. Uh, it's really disturbing. So there was, um, now I'm going to forget who the author was, but um, there, I, I tweeted there's, it there's recently. A, there's a lot of that going around, Rosa. There's, I Rosa. know, apparently. It's contagious. But um, there's a guy who wrote a piece, and it was the Huffington Post um, posted it recently, and I tweeted it, so you can look on my Twitter account. But the, the guy basically was positing that Trump has a foreign policy, and his foreign policy is basically the same as Putin and Xi, which is, you know, great powers, balance of power, go back in time. And these nationalists also, they don't want to subscribe to the old alliance system of the, you know, late 20th, 20, early 21st century. They are looking to ally themselves with like-minded nationalists who want populism, who want closed borders, who want illiberal democracy, which is basically not democracy. I mean, you can have elections, but that, that's about the extent of it. And, and to be able to agree amongst themselves what will happen to everybody else. They want to hold on to power you know, engineer their systems as as you've seen uh, Orban do in 
in Hungary and of course Erdogan do in Turkey. Um, although Hungary, I would argue, was more democratic than Turkey ever was. But nevertheless, through their system, through the gaining of elections, then they engineered things so that they ultimately in Hungary took control of the media. And I think there's still a judiciary there, but it's not a liberal democracy, as the as the prime minister has said. And Trump, unfortunately, he has he has demonstrated at least verbally and also through his actions that he has a tendency to like these anti-democratic measures that these leaders have taken. So for those who are on, you know, a high state of alert against neo-fascism, Trump sidling up to these fellows, and they're all fellows, has been disconcerting. And I think that's where we in America are saying, okay, we got to hold the president's feet to the fire. We have to speak up when he does or says things, when he attacks the media, for example, verbally, um, and when he takes action, like when his White House throws out the pool reporter last week, as they did, because she was yelling questions, which, by the way, is standard procedure for them. So I, I do think that there's, there is something scary about this. You know, we can laugh and make fun of these characters, but what's underlying it, the affinity that they have is for a, only a notional kind of democracy. They really just want to hold on to power. Corey, what do you think of this phenomenon? Uh, I, I know that Evelyn watches this very carefully, and I found what she just said both um, shocking and resonating in a lot that's going on right now. I do think we need to be a lot more worried about the corrosion, not just of our institutions of democracy, but the norms that on on which everything else rubs along. I do think the I am myself quite worried that the erosion of our democratic norms that has gone on in the Trump administration uh, may actually outlive the Trump administration. And I I hate to say that, but I do fear it. Last word of this pod, Rosa, to you. Same question, though. What do you think of this trend? <laughs> I, I think Corey basically just said it. Uh, I fear it as well. Well, I think that's actually the appropriate last word, because I think what is happening here um, is bigger than all those headlines we're reading each day and all of those newspapers and all of those websites. Um, because while we may think the Trump story is the big story, the really big story is that there has been this uh, rise, supported in, in many places by the Russians, of nationalism, of intolerance, of... Uh, animus towards the other, um, that is being used to cut away at these democratic norms, um, but also to make global society and the global community um, a lot less humane, a lot less um, working uh, towards the, the aspirations that have at least been agreed to as aspirations by the global community since the end of the Second World War. And so as bad as it may seem in the U.S., the fact that this is a, a global trend makes one wonder uh, 
what happens post Trump again? What what you know that how does this continue? There you know is there is no one player that is especially important in this, um, perhaps. In any event, we will come back to that issue, I suspect, in future episodes of Deep State Radio. For the moment, I want to thank Rosa Brooks. I want to thank Evelyn Farkas. And I want to thank Corey Shockey for a great discussion. And we'll see you all again sometime real soon. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.